1: Good evening, and welcome to the Business of Giving. I'm Denver Frederick, and we're going to begin tonight with a very serious issue and an organization that is helping to address it. It's suicide among LGBTQ youth. For young people seeking immediate help and in need of someone to connect with, there is the Trevor Project. And you'll hear tonight from their CEO and executive director, Amit Paley.
2: LGBTQ young people are more than four times more likely to attempt suicide than their peers. And as you mentioned... So suicide overall is a public health crisis yeah, in this yeah. country, particularly mm-hmm. acute for young people. And then it's LGBTQ youth who really face these much higher rates.
1: And then I'll be joined by Captain Yvonne Roman of the Newark Police Department. Through the Women's Leadership Academy, which she founded, she's committed to increasing the recruitment of women into law enforcement. And mm-hmm. what the
3: research shows is that women are less likely to be named in the lawsuit less likely to be named in a citizen complaint. Uh, They use less force. Research shows that their mere presence on a scene also lowers the use of force among other officers. Uh, Women have uh, great interpersonal communication skills. They naturally de-escalate. They don't have to be trained to do that.
1: But first, the Business of Giving News Digest for Sunday, August 18th. A new study of Americans who give regularly to charity found that what motivates them is finding causes that affect them or people that they know and having a clear idea of a charity's objective. Science philanthropies could amplify their impact considerably if they invested more purposely in communications, a new report finds. In light of the recent mass shootings in El Paso, Dayton, and Gilroy, California, Lady Gaga said she'll be funding classroom project needs in the three cities. Partnering with Donors Choose, alongside her own Born This Way Foundation, 162 classrooms will benefit from the funding. The average child today spends less than three years playing a sport. Quitting by age 11, most often because the sport isn't fun anymore. The New York Public Library, famed Marble Lions, Patience and Fortitude, are getting a grooming. Beginning September 2nd, they'll undergo an essential nine-week restoration. And finally, the route you take to the office might affect how much you weigh. New research found workers who pass more fast food restaurants on the way to work had a higher average body mass index than their co-workers. And that is the Business of Giving News Digest for this Sunday evening. I'll be back to speak with Amit Paley of The Trevor Project right after this.
4: A simple smile can say so much. It can say thank you, please, or even I love you. Sometimes a smile can say more than words could ever express. But what if you couldn't smile? Unfortunately, that's the sad reality for so many children today. Without the help of life-saving surgery, helpless children find themselves cast Aside and all alone. But it doesn't have to be this way. To learn how you can help Smile Train, the world's largest cleft charity, change the world one smile at a time, go to smiletrain.org. Recruit the best talent. Explore the untapped pool of 24 million productive Americans with disabilities. The National Organization on Disability is the leading partner to help companies succeed in disability employment. Learn more at NOD.org. If you're interested in reading transcripts of guests' interviews from The Business of Giving, you can find them at denverfrederick.wordpress.com. And now back to the show
1: on AM 970, The Answer. According to a recent survey, 39% of LGBTQ youth seriously considered attempting suicide in the past 12 months, with more than half transgender youth seriously considering the same thing. Those are alarming statistics. But if you are a young person in crisis, feeling suicidal, and in need of a safe and a judgment free place to talk, there is such a place to turn to. It's called the Trevor Project, and it's a pleasure to have with us tonight their CEO and Executive Director, Amit Paley. Good evening, Amit, and welcome to the business of giving.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: The Trevor Project was founded back in 1998. How did it get started?
2: So the Trevor Project got started actually out of storytelling in Hollywood. There was a short film called Trevor, a fictional story about a young 13-year-old boy uh, named Trevor who realized that he was gay and then dealt with feelings of depression and suicide. It ended up winning an Academy Award for Best Short Film. And after it did, it aired on HBO. And the producers of the film realized, well, all these young people across the country are going to see this movie. We want to make sure that they can get resources if they are young people like Trevor. And what they discovered was that there was no national organization providing that support for LGBTQ youth. The movie was called Trevor, so they founded a nonprofit called The Trevor Project. They created the country's first 24-7 phone lifeline for LGBTQ youth. They launched it about 10 minutes before the show went on the air on HBO, (laughs) and then the phone started ringing off the hook that night, and it hasn't stopped for the past 21 years. Incredible.
1: Well, the statistics I cited in the opening came uh, from your organization's first national mental health survey among LGBTQ youth. Share with us some of the key findings of that survey.
2: So this was, first of all, a really important and groundbreaking study. There were uh, more than 30,000 young people across the country who took part in this. And um, so important, but also really heartbreaking. As you shared, 39% 39% of LGBTQ youth seriously consider suicide every year. Um, that, that actually ends up uh, converting into more than 1.8 million LGBTQ youth across the country who seriously consider suicide. This is a public health crisis, and the full report goes into detail about... This is not a problem that affects just one gender, just one race, just one part of the country. We heard from young people in all 50 states and in Puerto Rico and the District of Columbia. Um, And one of the things that we that we saw very clearly is that young people right now are identifying in very different ways than people might have before in our survey young people identified more than 100 different types of sexual orientations Mm -hmm. and more than 100 different types of gender identities. And we often see that young people who have identities that are perhaps not as well-known face some of the highest risk, in particular transgender and non-binary youth. Um, They face much higher rates of uh, attempts of suicide, of considering suicide, and they also face much more discrimination in their lives. Mm -hmm.
1: Did your survey indicate that the political climate has any kind of impact in the way they feel?
2: Yes, we found that young people in the survey, found, more than half of them said that the political climate had an impact on their mental health. Um, and we've also seen that in other types of data that we've been collecting. Um, the day after the presidential election in 2016, our call volume more than doubled in a 24-hour period of time. When there are negative policies, in particular there have been a lot of negative policies in the past few years against transgender and non-binary people, we have seen spikes in those young people feeling distressed and reaching out to us for help.
1: You know, looking at those numbers another way, I know that suicide is the second leading cause of death among young people in the U.S. How much more likely is it uh, for LGBTQ youth?
2: LGBTQ young people are more than four times more likely to attempt suicide than their peers. And as you mentioned... So suicide overall is a public health crisis in this country, Mm -hmm. particularly acute for young people. And then it's LGBTQ youth who really face these much higher rates. So this is suicide is often an issue that people do not feel comfortable talking about. There's still a lot of stigma. And that's what we're trying to both get the word out on how um, significant a public health crisis there is and to also let young people know that they are never alone and they can always reach out to the Trevor Project for help.
1: Well, learning the warning signs of suicide is a huge part of presenting a crisis. What are some of those signs?
2: So there are a number of different warning signs that that can indicate that someone might be thinking about suicide. Um, They might be feeling lethargic. They might be uh, not willing to go to school or get out of bed. They might seem withdrawn. Um, I think what's very important for everyone to know is that one of the most important things you can do to understand if someone is thinking about suicide is to ask them. A lot of people are very nervous about that. Some people think that if you ask someone, it might plant the idea in their head. Mm -hmm. That is not true. That is a myth. All the research indicates that is not correct. In fact, asking someone if they are thinking of killing themselves can be life-saving for that person because it can allow them to share what they're going through and allow you to make a connection with them and try to identify places where they can get help.
1: That's great advice. Um, if I may, what was it like for you when you realized you were gay and what thoughts ran through your mind?
2: Yeah, I, it, I when I was... Uh, a Teenager I realized that that um, I was gay and it was really difficult for me because I had this idea that if anyone ever knew who I was um, they would never accept me that they would never love me and um, you know I kept that part of myself hidden for a really long time and it was very very um, difficult and I was in a lot of dark places um, in parts of my teenage years and into college um, I came out in my senior year of college mm-hmm. and uh, you know, although I faced some difficulties in doing that, um, you know, it was such an important part of my life because when you are, um, unable to share who you are, it really has a significant impact on your mental health. Oh, I can imagine. Um, and you know, today as a proud LGBTQ person leading an organization, um, it's kind of amazing for me to reflect on the thing that I was most ashamed about, the thing that I was most afraid that anyone would ever find out about me is now not actually something that I'm incredibly proud of, but is actually my my life's work (laughs) to to talk to people about um, being proud and supportive of LGBTQ people.
1: Mm -hmm. You were a volunteer at the Trevor Project for maybe eight years or so before you became the CEO. So you've taken hundreds and hundreds of phone calls from young people um, and I know that you continue to man the phones to th- this day. What are you hearing? Uh, what are the messages that come through
2: yeah we 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 hear i mean, first of all, I want to say that that being a volunteer counselor uh, on the Trevor Lifeline is the most rewarding thing I have ever done and continue to do and i as you say, I continue to to talk to young people but that's great
1: because um, you know a lot of ceos you lose touch with the organization when you stop doing that and it becomes important to continue so I, I applaud you for for continuing to So work those phones.
2: Well, thank you for saying that. I mean, mean, for me, it's a privilege to be able to do it, and it's incredibly rewarding. I do also think it's really helpful in my job as CEO that um, not just looking at numbers, (laughs) not just looking at long-term strategic plans, but actually the reason we exist as an organization Mm -hmm. is to be there for LGBTQ youth and be able to hear directly from them really does inform um, so much of what I do in my day-to-day part of my job. Um, In terms of what we hear from young people, uh, it's a little bit hard to sort of put that into one sort I of snapshot because, <laughs> you know, we hear from so many young people mm-hmm. and they have so many different types of experiences. We hear from some young people who are calling because they are literally they, they have a weapon in their hands and they are thinking about killing themselves in shortly. Sometimes we hear from young people who are not imminently thinking of killing themselves, but they're in a really difficult situation there. They were just in a breakup. They're thinking about coming out and they're struggling with mm-hmm. it. They're having a tough time at school because someone is bullying them. So it's it's a wide range of experiences. Um, you know, I think for me, um, the most rewarding ones are when you um, have the ability to make a connection and you really it, – it's you can tell that it's a key transformational moment in that person's life. You know, I, I, I think about – one call that I that I had um, with with a young woman who was in the middle of the country. I won't say exactly where, and she was talking about this um, the fear that she had about her father not accepting her, um, and she wasn't sure whether she should come out to anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, she said, "I just don't know what would happen if I came out because um, I've never told anyone that I'm a lesbian." And I said to her, "Well." you've come out to me, uh, you've told me that you're a lesbian, and and I have to tell you, there may be people in your life who won't accept you for being who you are. And your father may be one of those people. But I need you to know that there are many, many people in the world who will not only accept you for being who you are, but will celebrate you and be proud of who you are. And I want you to know that I am one of those people, and I'm incredibly proud of you. And When we say things like that to young people, you often just the next thing you hear is someone just sobbing because they never they never thought that someone would not only tolerate them and accept them, but celebrate them. And that's one of the most powerful things that we can do is just to be there to listen and to affirm people for being who they are.
1: Yeah, no question. That's a great story. And I think when you're in that place, you're only looking at the negative side of the equation and never looking at the other side of it. It's just the way humans are built. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, do you have a psychiatrist or psychologist on staff to help work with some of the, the, the people who call?
2: We do. So we actually uh, just hired our first-ever medical director. Um, she is a, a psychiatrist. Great. and And um, our head of crisis services is a clinical psychologist. We also um, have been building out our research department, and we have um, clinical psychologists um, in our research department as well. Um you know, not not everyone on our staff is a psychiatrist or a psychologist. We have many people who are um, from different backgrounds in public health in social work, and many people who have been trained. I mean I think it is important to to note that to be a volunteer counselor at the Trevor project, you do not need to be a, a psychiatrist or mm-hmm. psychologist or social worker. Um, we can teach um, people who have basic skills around uh, empathy if you If you have the ability to empathize and the ability to learn and be adaptive um, and to create a safe welcoming environment, we can teach you how to be uh, a counselor. But we do think it 's really important to make sure that we 're bringing in um, really important disciplinary perspectives from um, epidemiology public health psychiatry psychology because oftentimes so many parts of the mental health world are siloed, mm-hmm. and pub- suicide is too big a public health crisis and too complex to not be trapping into every source of knowledge and wisdom that we can.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, do you ever encounter um, the challenge of regular callers, uh, people who may not be in a crisis mode at the moment but are lonely or just want to chat? And how do you address that situation while wanting to keep the lines free for somebody who might really be in the midst of a crisis?
2: Yeah, I I'm not sure that I would call them a challenge, but we do we yeah. do face people who regularly um, call us, mm-hmm. and there are people who regularly call us and actually text us and chat with us. And there might be different reasons that they that they do that. Um, we are not we are not an organization that is set up to provide ongoing. We're not a substitute for um, provision of mental health counseling, Um, but there are some people who don't have access to that type of mental health um, treatment that they need. Um, And so we actually are there for people who will reach out to us at various times. And sometimes there are people who are really going through a very, very difficult time and they reach out to us Mm -hmm. every single day. Um, You know, We have um, certain ways that we want to make sure that we're properly Um, treating them and that we are appropriately serving them. Um, But, yes, we do have people who reach out to us many, many times. And for us, it's important to make sure that we are there for people when they are in crisis or suicidal.
1: You know, we've been talking about that uh, 800 hotline. um, But as you just alluded to, you have other platforms uh, that people can connect with you. Speak a little bit about those.
2: Yeah, well, it it's 2019, so uh, young people uh, do still pick up the phone sometimes, and we and we do have many young people who reach out to us by phone. But there are many young people who would never pick up the phone. They ever, want, ever. They, <laughs> for anything, for any, They 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 want to text and they want to chat. And the Trevor Project was actually um, uh, an early adapter to uh, exploring the world of text and chat for suicide prevention. Um, we had a big milestone in our organizational history earlier this year. We took those digital crisis services to be 24-7 for the first time earlier this year. Fantastic! And that's really important because, you know, especially for our population, if you're a young person, you're 14 years old, you're in your bedroom, and you need help at 2 a.m. when it could be a really dangerous time of night, um, you may not feel safe picking up the phone because your parents might hear you. But mm-hmm. in your bed you can text, you can chat from your phone. We also know that there are certain parts of the population that we serve, um, transgender and non-binary youth um, and female-identified youth who prefer digital crisis services over phone. And so that's what we've really been working on building out that program. We want to make sure that we can meet young people wherever and whenever
1: they are. What are you doing in the realm of uh, AI and machine learning to to better serve uh, the young people?
2: Yeah, so that's a very uh, exciting, I think, area of opportunity for us. We are just starting to build out a program to really make sure we're leveraging technology for good. Um, We just received a major grant from Google. Um, We won part of their AI social good competition. And we're going to be using machine learning and AI to help improve our quality of care for young people. So one of the early applications that we're going to be looking at is how can we identify more quickly in a conversation, especially in our digital conversations where there's text, mm-hmm. how can we identify there whether someone is at higher risk of suicide? And if there ha- is there a queue and people have a wait time to get there, how can we make sure that we are prioritizing the people that are higher risk? And we ask people that, we perform a risk assessment, but there are ways that we think we can use machine learning and AI to more rapidly identify those highest risk people And that, you know, one minute, a couple minutes, that could be the difference
1: uh, between life and death for some people. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, How does the Trevor Project work in the schools?
2: So we have uh, an education program. We provide uh, LGBTQ-competent suicide prevention trainings uh, in schools um, for youth-facing adults. Uh, We talked about how suicide is a public health crisis in this country, but there is very, very little government investment in suicide prevention, mm-hmm. and very little in schools. As we said, it's a thing that sometimes people are afraid to talk about. So in some cases, we are providing LGBTQ-competent suicide prevention trainings, but in some places, that's the only suicide prevention trainings that, right. that are available in those schools. So um, it's a program that we're, we think is really important because it's a way that we can help end suicide among LGBTQ youth by trying to um build support systems in schools and other places where young people are.
1: How do you go about measuring your impact?
2: We measure our impact in a number of different ways. Um, it's interesting because before I became uh, CEO, there was actually a big discussion on the board of the Trevor Project of having an independent evaluation of the Trevor Project's um, crisis services. It had never actually been done before. Mm-hmm. And as you know, there are a lot of nonprofits that in decades of existence, have actually never measured whether the work that they do has an impact. Maybe you're afraid Uh, to find out. Exactly. I think it it can be scary, and I think it was a little scary for the Trevor Project. Um, So the Trevor Project um, worked with um, academic researchers to conduct uh, an independent evaluation of uh, its crisis services on phone, text, and chat. Uh, and the, the key finding from that uh, independent evaluation was that 90% of the young people that the Trevor Project serves on its crisis services see a significant reduction in their suicidal ideation, not only right at the point of contact, but the researchers actually followed up several weeks later, mm-hmm. and they found that that impact persisted. So it actually turned out to be a, a higher impact than 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 uh, I think the organization <laughs> expected. So... um I think validating for the Trevor Project, but I also think for people listening, I just think it is so important that um, that we look at the data and actually measure is we, we feel good about what we're doing, but is what we're doing actually working? It's so important because if it's not, you will need to know that so you can adjust and figure out ways that you can improve. And even within that evaluation, um, a very high, a really great top line finding. Still lots of – when you do an evaluation, you find opportunities for things that you can improve in.
1: Yeah, and that's great to hear because I think so many organizations, and the way this is often discussed, is that you need to do it for funding. But really, that's secondary to getting better at what you do and being more effective, and it it just seems to be the, the right priority that you have. Let me ask you about conversion therapy because some people may not know what that is and some of your advocacy efforts that relate to it.
2: Mm -hmm. So we have a a small but mighty advocacy team and conversion therapy is really one of our top advocacy priorities. For those that don't know, conversion therapy is the dangerous and completely discredited practice of trying to change someone's sexual orientation or their gender identity. It does not work. It is harmful. It actually Mm -hmm. puts people at much higher risk of suicide. And um, we are working to end it once and for all. Um, but it is still very common. I think most people do not realize, most people think, did this go out in the Middle Ages or in the 1950s? Um, there are 32 states in the United States where it is still legal to try to have a licensed clinician put a young person through conversion therapy. Mm-hmm. That's wrong. Every organization, the American Psychological Association, the American Psychiatric Association, every mental health organization says that doesn't work. And so we have a campaign, 50 bills, 50 states, to end conversion therapy everywhere. Um, There's been a lot of success in recent years. Um, So 18 states, the legislatures have passed bans. Um, That number was zero a decade ago. Um, but we have 32 states. A lot more to, to do. A yeah. lot more to do, and, and we estimate that there are 700,000 people in this country who have undergone conversion therapy. Wow! So we're working with our many partners across the country um, to ensure that we can protect all
1: LGBTQ young people
2: from this essentially form of torture. Mm-hmm.
1: Speak a little bit about your business model and who some of your major supporters are. Uh, so
2: we um, we have a diversified uh, uh, funding model. That's always the best. Um, <laughs> uh, so we, we right now, um, our primary sources of funding are actually from um, small individual donors and from corporations. Um, it's interesting, actually, our, our major gift program is not as strong as we would like it to be. We're working to build it out more. Um, but it's, it's really gratifying to see how many young people and how many adults who are not necessarily LGBTQ, but just care about LGBTQ young people, Send in amounts fifty dollars, a hundred dollars, and when you see a note from a um, fifth grader who's sending in twenty five dollars and saying, "This is just so important. Um, I want to make sure all young people feel supported." Um, it's it's really amazing. You so, make your day. Yeah it, 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 it makes it makes your day, and it actually gives you confidence that. Um, the f- the future is brighter than we might otherwise think because <laughs> seeing young people just put what is for them a massive amount of money. Um, so we really work on an, on engaging um, donors across the country um, at at all levels. Um, we have a major donor program. We work with companies and. Um, We really try to partner with companies that are invested in our mission and that are focused on not just supporting us financially, which is so important, but also helping to spread awareness. And we've had some um, partnerships that have been really uh, exciting, you know, just to highlight a few of them. Um, We've been working with Macy's. Um, Macy's in their stores has been doing a roundup at the register. So it's been so incredible to see a brand like Macy's putting LGBTQ youth and suicide prevention front and center Um, working with their employees so that they can speak to customers about what's been going on. Um, And so that's been raising a lot of awareness and funds. Um, AT&T is a major supporter that helped us um, go 24-7 on our digital crisis services. We've done a lot of work with Abercrombie and Fitch, mm-hmm. which has done a lot of really um, interesting promotion on showing a really diverse section of the LGBTQ community, people of different genders and races and ethnic backgrounds and body sizes, um, to really show LGBTQ that they are seen and heard and loved
1: what 's it like to work at the Trevor Project, and what is unique about your corporate culture that makes it a special place for people to show up every morning? You know I
2: think one mm-hmm. of the really unique things about the Trevor Project is that um, we come in every day to save lives of people, and every single person at the organization, no matter what their job is is saving is helping to save lives of young people. Um, that's an incredible privilege. Uh, I don't take that for granted. I don't think anyone on our team takes that for granted. Um, you know i've I've worked at other places that I loved working and that were amazing. It's just it's it's a different feeling when you're coming in and knowing that um, we are there for young people at their darkest moments. You know, I think some of the things about our culture, um, you know, we um, we really want to make sure that we have a culture. Um, that is focused on impact, mm-hmm. and we're a fast-paced culture. Um, we're a data-driven, evidence-informed culture. We're also a culture that really cares a lot about um, making sure that our employees feel um, uh, safe and supported, and they have the opportunity to grow. Um, you know, as someone who came from um, came from uh, the for-profit world um i i often hear people who sort of think of the nonprofit and for-profit world as being very opposed you know you hear people in the nonprofit space sometimes put down the for-profit space or the for-profit space put down the nonprofit space we all hear it uh, yeah <laughs> and, and i think in my view i think both i think both sectors have a lot to learn from each other i think um you know the best places i ha- the highest performing cultures i have seen are ones that are really focused on impact and being evidence um based and and data-informed, which I think sometimes people only associate with the for-profit space. And I think the best working places are ones where people bring their whole heart and their whole selves and are really driven by passion and emotion, which I think people often associate with the non-profit mm-hmm. space. And in the Trevor Project, we are really trying to meld those two together to make sure we have people who are the smartest, most brilliant, but also the most passionate and big-hearted people you can imagine. And that's That's the culture that I feel really privileged to come into work every day at.
1: Let me close with this, Amit. And I really want to pick up on something you said before. And that was the thing that you most feared and caused you the greatest stress in your life has ended up being your life's work. How does that experience inform the way you go about your job?
2: I think it – it's both simultaneously um, incredibly rewarding and, you know, makes me feel just so lucky to be in a place and in a country and a time where um, I can be open um, and supported for who I am. I think it also it makes me feel a lot of pressure and, <laughs> and a high bar because um, even as we are talking right now in New York City where um, – I feel safe walking on the streets and being who I am. We know that there are so many people in parts of the world where they're not safe doing that. And there are many people here in the United States who are still not safe mm. being who they are um, and being open about their identity. Um, you know, the, some of the statistics we've talked about, particularly around transgender and non-binary people, it is still not safe for them to be who they are in so many parts of the country. And... Um, That's why we exist, to make sure that we can change that and make sure every young person knows that they are not alone, that they are beautiful the way they are, and that they can always turn to the Trevor Project for help and support.
1: Well, Amit Paley, the CEO and Executive Director of the Trevor Project, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. For those who might be in need of someone to talk or reach out to, how can they connect with the Trevor Project? And for those who want to become involved in the organization, perhaps as a volunteer, Or financially supporting it, what do they need to do?
2: So uh, if you are a young person or know a young person who uh, needs help and support from the Trevor Project, they can reach out by phone at 1-866-4U-TREVOR. They can reach out by text, uh, texting 678-678. You can connect to our chat service by going to our website, which is www.thetrevorproject.org. Um, And we also run other platforms and services that you can find on our website as well. Um, If you are a person who is interested in getting involved as a volunteer, there's also information on our website on how you can sign up to do that. It's an incredibly rewarding experience. And if you're interested in supporting us financially as a donor and just finding out more information, you can also do that by going to our website. We are looking to... Um, grow this community of people who are interested in being there and standing up for LGBTQ youth.
1: Well, thanks, Amit. It was great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Great being with you. I'll be back with more of The Business of Giving right after this.
3: I just finished months of chemo, but I don't want to talk about months. I want to talk about years. Treatments have gotten better, so I'm hoping for good years ahead. That's thanks to research funded by the American Cancer Society. The same folks giving me free rides to treatments, insurance advice, and a place to stay during chemo. I need that stuff like you don't know. And now that you do, please give at cancer.org.
4: Do you know someone who's dealing with a serious illness or injury? Researchers at Kessler Foundation in West Orange, New Jersey, are studying new treatments for people with brain injury, breast cancer, multiple sclerosis, osteoarthritis, and spinal cord injury. They need volunteers with these conditions, as well as healthy volunteers to serve as controls. To learn more, call Kessler Foundation at 844-KF-STUDY. That's 844 844- kf KF study. Tiana was homeless and looking for a change. At Year Up, she gained valuable skills and a path to success. 85% of Year Up alumni are employed or in school within four months of graduation. Support transformative opportunities for young adults like Tiana. Visit yearup.org. If you're interested in reading transcripts of guests' interviews from the Business of Giving, you can find them at denverfrederick.wordpress.com. And now, back to the show on AM 970, The Answer.
1: Despite overwhelming evidence that female police officers have a positive influence, women make up just 12% of police forces nationwide, a figure that has remained stagnant for the past 20 years. There are a number of reasons for this, including physical fitness tests that some believe are designed to exclude them. Championing the cause for more female police officers is Captain Yvonne Roman from the Newark, New Jersey Police Department. She's also the founder of the Women's Leadership Academy and an executive board member of the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing. Good evening, Yvonne, and welcome to the Business of Giving.
3: And Thank you for having me here.
1: Let's begin with the big story, one that everyone has been talking about and you've helped bring national attention to, and that is a change in the fitness test in New Jersey and the impact that that has had on female recruits. What has been going on?
3: I noticed it around uh, 2014 or 2015. The city of Newark had laid off approximately 167 officers in 2010, and I was charged with conducting a personnel analysis, and I found that another 600 officers could retire by 2020 if we didn't start an aggressive hiring plan. Uh, the plan was approved, and what I noticed was that as recruit classes were cycling through academies, Through the entire state of New Jersey, that women were failing at rates between sixty and eighty percent, and no one could explain why. As I started looking at the data, I found that women were stagnated in policing across the nation at about twelve and a half percent. I uh, got myself trained as a physical fitness instructor to see if I could uh, determine what was going on in the academies. I then learned that a new policy was implemented in 2017 that required the women to meet. Well, I'm sorry, not the women. Uh, all recruits to meet the physical fitness standards within 10 workout sessions. After that policy was put into place, the next two classes that we sent, 80% of the women were dismissed from the academy. I I then started looking at the research on uh, physical fitness exams. I learned that the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission says that if women do not pass at the rate of 80% of the male pass rate, then the test on its face is invalid. And the only way that the agency can defend against that is if they could prove that the test is based on a bona fide occupational qualification. When I started to review what the women were failing for, an overwhelming amount of them were failing for the push-ups exam. Mm -hmm. And the push-ups have never been validated as being Mm work-related. Who made this change? That was the Police Training Commission. Uh, They had been planning it, um, I hear, about a year, a year and a half. It went into effect January 1st of 2017. But for some reason, the rate of women being dismissed from the academy had started climbing in 2015, and it reached that 80% mark after 2017 when they implemented that new policy with the 10 workout sessions.
1: Why so few sessions? I mean, this goes on for a while at the academy. Why were they given so little time to improve.
3: Uh, There has been um, no reasonable answer for that. USA Today conducted an investigation where they gathered 10 years of records and they spoke to numerous individuals at the Police Training Commission. It seems that that was a decision made amongst the commissioners at a meeting. uh, They thought that 10 sessions was sufficient to have someone pass those fitness standards. Uh, Their test is based on the Cooper test. Mm -hmm. Um, The test that they implemented in 2017 17 had been found to. Lead to disparities in Pennsylvania just the year before. And um, they implemented that test knowing that I had been challenged and that they lost that challenge in uh, the Pennsylvania State Police. So they figured they'd add the 10 workout sessions to give people a little more time. But those 10 workout sessions have never been validated. It's not based on science, it's not based on physiology. The people who actually designed the Cooper test said that they've never heard of anything like that, and there's no way possible that. That someone who couldn't perform that exam on the first date could uh, perform that on the 10th date. Yeah. Uh, if you give them uh, sufficient time, uh, men and women can build body mass uh, and, and especially upper body mass. Women have less testosterone than men, so it will take them a little longer um, to be able to pass that test. But that 10 workout session just doesn't exist anywhere else in the United States.
1: So now that this has come to everyone's attention. USA Today did cover it. You gave a TED Talk about it. What kind of activity has that generated at the state level in New Jersey?
3: There is a uh, talk about reviewing the standards again um, the opinion on the police training commission board seems to be divided. One individual that was interviewed said um, that if it's leading to disparities, that they would address it, that they weren't aware that this was leading to disparate outcomes. Uh, another individual that was interviewed said that the uh, academy is not a day spa mm-hmm. and that if they come in and they're not able to perform, it, it's not their job. To uh, get someone to that level where they can pass the test, but I argue that the military does the complete opposite, and law enforcement community has deep respect for law uh, for the military. The military guarantees you that if. You come in on on day one and you pass the background and and the physical and and it shows that you can be trained, that at the end of that 12 weeks, they will turn you into a soldier, Mm -hmm. that you will pass that test. Um, It's very hard to fail out of the military because they'll assign someone to you to make sure you pass that test. So why are we holding our police officers to more stringent requirements that our own U.S. military, we're not training soldiers, we're training public servants?
1: What's the impact been on these women? and who have failed the test. I would imagine in many cases they quit their jobs to do this. Um, uh,
3: uh, really tough stories. Um, women um, invested about $2,000 in in fees and equipment. They mm. quit their jobs. They cut all their hair off to, to be fired within the first two and a half to three weeks. A lot of them uh, couldn't return to their jobs. Um, it, it's been a challenge, but these women really wanted, um, these positions. So they came to me so I can train them to pass this, this physical fitness test. And they went back and they've been successful. And what I found is that the sweet spot is around two and a half to three months where they're able to pass this test. The Academy's five months long. What this means is had they not been fired, they would have passed this test. Yeah. And and, and let's consider all the money that was spent in the background check, the medical, the psychological. Um, It was a huge investment just to kick these individuals out between two and a half and three weeks. When law enforcement is admittedly experiencing a recruitment crisis, it's it's, it's national news. Yeah.
1: Uh, Are we looking at a class action suit here?
3: The women that uh, are in my group did not want to sue. They wanted to uh, prepare and re-enter the academy. The, the newspaper article mentions a class action suit. I don't know uh, which women are involved in that program. In my program, the women that um, joined my group decided to re-enter the academy. And I've had women that it was either their second or their third academy. Mm-hmm. And um, they're, thankfully, um, all police officers. I had um, my biggest group graduate on July twenty. 5th, I had 17 women pass the Newark Police Academy.
1: We'll, we'll stay tuned to this story. It is incredibly uh, important and interesting. You know, in addition to these physical fitness tests, are there other systemic obstacles, both in New Jersey and across the country, that limit the number of women who become police officers?
3: Because, so when I started this program, it was based on my observation on what was going on in the North Police Department. And I'm also a PhD student, so I wanted to study it in... Um, a scientific way and Mm -hmm. and control the group to just Newark police department. But because so many women were facing the same challenges across so many different um, law enforcement agencies in New Jersey and even federal agencies, I had to open it up. Um, So I'm training women across um, different agencies. I've trained Newark, Irvington, East Orange, the state police. I have an FBI recruit. I've done DEA, um, juvenile justice. So, a lot of chiefs will argue that women don't want these jobs. They do. Um, they, they, they travel to Newark, even though they live far away. Some travel as far as an hour in order to get these sessions. Um They need to be supported. So when chiefs say that they want uh, to recruit more women, I argue, does your recruitment message mirror the culture of the agency and the academies that they're going into?
1: Yeah. And almost all these chiefs are men, I presume. I think there are about 450 uh, police departments in the state of New Jersey. How many female uh, police chiefs are there?
3: Um, A very small amount. I think uh, about 10. And nationally, there's about 3 percent of uh, uh, police chiefs.
1: Yeah. You know, I mentioned in the opening the positive impact and influence that women police officers have and uh, how they make communities safer. Tell us a little bit more about that research.
3: So I, I started looking at the research. I like to give uh, evidence based facts um Statistics that have been researched, not my own personal opinion, because it's easy to dismiss someone's opinion. You have to support it with facts. Mm-hmm. And what the research shows is that women are less likely to be named in a lawsuit, less likely to be named in a citizen complaint. Uh, they use less force. Uh it, research shows that their mere presence on a scene also lowers the use of force among other officers. Uh, women have uh, great interpersonal communication skills. They naturally de-escalate. They don't have to be trained to do that. And these are traits that some men possess also, but they've been uh, innately found it, uh, within women. Yeah. And I think it culturally, we're 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 more communicative, communicative, and that translates to to the role of policing.
1: Yeah, and from what I gather, that's not tested to the level the physical fitness is in terms of your intrapersonal skills and how you communicate and things of that sort. And it's... Certainly, equally, if not of greater importance,
3: I, I would say it's of greater importance, yeah, especially um, now where there's these strained relationships between policing and community. Um, I just came back um, from a noble conference, and one of the chiefs said, In, um, You know, um, a lot of people, what they have is their pride, and um, they will defend their pride. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've had um, instances, and I don't like to use anecdotes, but I'll, I'll talk to someone, and I might not be able to help them, but I hear them out, and they're so grateful. Even though I wasn't able to resolve their problem, and they'll say, wow, you don't act like a cop. No,
1: you listen, listen. <laughs> yeah,
3: and that's a shame, you yeah. know, um, because uh, it, it, it's, it takes so little to, to just give someone an ear, let them vent, right? And, mm-hmm. and you may be able— to resolve the matter just by hearing them out, even though you couldn't fix exactly what it was that they called you for.
1: Absolutely. You have founded the Women's Leadership Academy. What's the mission of that organization, and what kind of programs do you offer?
3: So we started that because of the number of women that were failing the academy. I realized that 10 workout sessions just wasn't enough. Um, Physiologically, it's not enough time. Um, We have less testosterone. We have less muscle mass, but I know that they can be trained. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of women um, don't know what's going to be required of them, Um, so I bring them in and I uh, provide a first assessment that runs them through the test that they're going to take at the academy and we figure out what their strengths and weaknesses are and we meet on a weekly basis and once a month I'll retest them. But during the week, they have to post their workouts and we hold them accountable through this chat group. But more importantly, it's the mentoring Um, for them to figure out what is the career trajectory, what to expect, what the interview is like, what the background check is like, what items they should have prepared in order to meet these uh, um, background requirements. A lot of men have family members that are police officers, mm-hmm. and, and women don't have usually that access to that information. And that goes a long way to helping someone um, enter policing.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, you've created a sisterhood, and so often they feel like they're out there by themselves. Yes. But when they can sort of commiserate and share stories and and uh, and tip with each other, it makes all the difference in the world.
3: Yeah. I, I, the relationships are beautiful. Um, I, I, I consider a lot of them my friends. They've been to my house. I've been to their house. And these relationships— uh, really don't exist within police departments because there's too few women, mm-hmm. or um, maybe um, there's this concept of othering, where where you're a minority, you align yourself with uh, the the thoughts of um, management, and you're scared to speak out and advocate for yourself. So. Part of what we do here is creating these relationships so that we also have a network that recommend each other for training, recommend each other for positions, because that's how someone gets ahead. That's how someone gets on the right track for leadership, if that's what you want.
1: Absolutely. Well, as you mentioned a moment ago, much of policing has been done based on old assumptions and stories and anecdotes and sometimes things that just seem to make sense. But you are an executive member of the uh, board of the American Society for Evidence-Based Policing, and you're looking at these practices in a much more scientific and rigorous way. So let me ask you about a couple, Um, starting with broken windows. First, why don't you explain to our listeners exactly what broken windows is and what evidence has shown where it's been practiced?
3: So Broken Windows was a theory by George Kelling and James Q. Wilson. It was a magazine article published in The Atlantic in in 1983, I believe. And uh, the theory says that if you address minor offenses, that crime would go down, that when people feel that there aren't... um, guardians on the street, that um, it allows violent crime to fester. And the theory said that uh, police should intervene in establishing order in a community. Um, as chiefs embrace this theory, most famously uh, in uh, the NYPD, it yep. uh, in, in arrests increased dramatically in um offenses such as uh, vagrancy loitering public consumption of alcohol. Um, New York City at the time was innovating greatly. And um, there was a stagnation in policing where there was no innovation going on. So they embraced the broken windows theory along with Comstat. So um, crime went down in New York City. And uh, a lot of people took notice because New York City was a very violent city. And now it's one of the safest, largest cities in the world. And people... um, The assumption is that broken windows was the driver of that. But there have been many studies examining whether it was broken windows or not. And uh, it's mixed reviews. Um, Many um, studies find that this was not related to a broken windows, that you can't separate broken windows from Comstat, um, and that crime was going down nationally, even in cities that did not implement broken windows. And then there's the question of the harms and um, the over-incarceration of individuals. Uh, Broken windows is practiced in uh, areas that are experiencing disorder, which tend to be black and brown communities. Communities. And the way that broken windows is enforced um, is usually through arrests, um, though James Q. Wilson and George Kelling didn't advocate for mass arrests in the original article. Um, it can't be denied that. It, it was counted and measured as arrest, even in an article that was ri- written by George Kelling um, in defense of broken windows. Um, the argument goes that it's the ivory tower elite that are attacking uh, broken windows and that they don't have a fundamental understanding of the needs of police departments. Uh, James Q. Wilson um, and I'm sorry, George Kelling and an individual named Sosa, uh, William Sosa, I believe, wrote a paper and they said, we will prove once and for all that Broken Windows works. In a 10-year period, uh, for every 28... low-level offense arrests that were affected, one violent crime was prevented. In the span of 10 years, 60,000 violent crimes were prevented. So I'm not a statistician, but I pulled out my calculator and I multiplied 28 arrests times 60,000 violent crimes over a 10-year period. And that came out to about million six hundred thousand and eighty six hundred eighty thousand people being arrested. So that means that and 20,000 people weren't responsible for violent crimes. So you have to ask yourself, do the ends justify the means? Are are these people, Mm -hmm. uh, is it okay to lock up 20 individuals and in that net you have 27 guppies and one shark? Uh, You have to ask yourself, what is the impact to that community that's that's arrested and rearrested over and over again? The impact of the fines that accumulate your driver's license suspended, the impact to your criminal record and Mm -hmm. your employability. What what happens to these communities that are experiencing this disorder policing and chiefs love it and they'll say, well, it, it's so elegant and it's simplicity. It's simplicity is what makes it so dangerous. That's
1: exactly right. And that's true with just about everything. Uh, people find that one stat and mm-hmm. it, it validates what they want to do. But you have to look at it holistically. Yes. And all those unintended consequences that people never take a look at. What about juvenile curfew laws? Are they a good way to reduce uh, juvenile crime?
3: So, uh <laughs> Starting in um, every summer, you'll usually have a wave of police chiefs announcing that um, they're having a, a juvenile curfew um, implementation over the summer. Um, the juvenile... The scare about juveniles came about with uh, John Diulio He was a Princeton um, professor, and he came up with the theory of super predators in 1990. Mm-hmm. He said that there was going to be a wave of homicidal juveniles that would make the Bloods and the Crips uh, look meek by comparison. <laughs> and, and it never materialized, but it led to these... Um, Uh, laws where you could charge juveniles as adults. You can put them in jail for life and actually... Starting in 1990, the violent crime for juveniles plummeted and it keeps plummeting. And um, if you look at the trend lines for juvenile crime, uh, if it continues, it'll fall off the map. It'll go into the negative, <laughs> which is which is impossible. But these laws that were enacted, these curfew laws to curtail these super predators were never taken off the books. Mm-hmm. And what it does is it introduces juveniles into the criminal justice system for status offenses, status. Offenses are are crimes that Wouldn't be a crime if you were an adult So um, being outside after 10 or 11 p.m. W- would be a, a Status offense and in and, and some Agencies that status offense leads to an arrest. Yeah. An arrest means you're fingerprinted and photographed. You've just entered this child into the juvenile uh, justice system for being out late. Mm. Um, and, and chiefs will argue that it helps them combat crime and problems with uh, problematic juveniles. But you don't need the curfew law to do that. If you have probable cause or reasonable sus- suspicion, you can make that stop without the curfew law. Mm-hmm. And you can ground it on the Constitution instead of uh, a status this offense and being out late.
1: You know, on a very sober note, another New York police officer killed himself last week, uh, continuing a rash of suicides that have claimed eight lives this year. And it's hard to comprehend that more police officers now are losing their lives to suicide than are in the line of duty. Speak to that, Yvonne. What's being done? What still needs to be done?
3: So uh, for a long time, no one was tracking how many officers were committing suicide. I was in a training in in Boston in 2016, and someone from the Boston Police Department had told me that in in that month, four or five – I don't remember if it was four or five Mm -hmm. – officers had committed suicide. And – it's it's getting more attention and it's getting uh, funding from the National Institute of Justice, the Nan- National Institute of Health. They um, Even the President's Task Force on 21st Century Policing, the first pillar is increasing trust and legitimacy. But the sixth pillar is officer wellness and safety. Mm-hmm. And if you have officers that are well taken, uh, well taken care of and they're healthy, um, everyone benefits, the police department, the community and two officers. Often, um, officers are stigmatized for admitting anything that may be emotional or mentally draining. They're expected to be these machines, and the minute that they mention that they may be suffering some kind of um, Mental issue where early on they can get help. Um, Many agencies' first response is to take their gun and 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 force them to go into a hospital for screening. Um, So if there's this huge stigma assigned to it, um, officers aren't going to come forward and admit that they're suffering vulnerability. They'll suck it up. That's a very (laughs) common practice, and then um, then their peers will tease them and tell them that they're part of the rubber gun squad. why aren't we allowed to 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 be human, right? Our officers are not machines. They internalize trauma day in and day out. They're acting um, as guardians. They have to hold it all in and control this scene. But ultimately, that has to let out in some way. We need to give our officers a more positive um, avenue to release this. We need to give them access to mental health. And we can't continue to stigmatize it because— we it, it will lead to this rash of suicides. Um, we have to allow officers to seek the help that they need. The agency has to support them, and we have to remove the stigma about asking for help.
1: How does the public's perception of the police, and there have been some pretty tough stories lately on the news, um, affect the morale of the force?
3: The morale definitely is, is impacted. Um, you can see it on... Um, Officers, how they're reacting. They feel that they're not being supported. They fear, they feel that at times um, media is quick to judge before all the facts are coming out. I, I believe that, you know, there's a need for criminal justice reform, but I also believe that there's been a villainization of an entire uh, workforce. Um, there are bad apples and they need to be rooted out and they they, they need to be identified. And uh, police agencies have to be more proactive in that so that officers that are trying to do the right thing can do their job without this friction that's occurring. So uh, there is definitely um, an increase in, individuals uh, challenging police officers um, on minor traffic stops, and it, 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 the potential is there for escalation. Um, we have to find a way to um, resolve these issues, but uh, definitely when you speak to any officer across the United States, they'll say that there, there is an issue with the, them feeling safe mm-hmm. and, uh, and supported.
1: Yeah. Let me close with this, Yvonne, for a young woman, maybe in the process of making a career choice and thinking about becoming a police officer what advice would you give her
3: so um i mentor uh right now we have about 150 women in my group and i'm very honest with them uh, it's a great job um mm-hmm. if i had to do it all over again I will, but was it easy for me? No, it wasn't. I had to work twice as hard for half of the recognition. Um there is the part of being sexualized always. Um I once was given an award for crime reduction in my precinct and I was interview in, um I was introduced as the most beautiful captain in the police department. That completely diminished my accomplishments. Mm-hmm. Um it and 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 it detracted from what I had Achieved, so um, there. The, it, it's a, a great job. I've when I've I've been a police officer. No day has been identical to the one before. I've been given incredible opportunities. I've been able to test all the way up the chain of command. I even served as chief of police. But I want women to go in knowing what the climate is and what we can do together to to change that. Because I believe that. Uh, change comes gradually with a gradual pressure, right? It's having these uncomfortable conversations about my own experience and what they can expect. And then they know uh, how they can act. They know how they may react. They know what the laws are. They know what their recourses are. And that they know that they have a support system that that will help them. That's what this organization offers. Uh, it's a great job, and, and I recommend it wholeheartedly.
1: Well, Captain Yvonne Roman of the Newark Police Department and founder of the Women's Leadership Academy, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. You gave a splendid TED Talk covering a lot of this. Where can listeners go to watch it?
3: Um, you can go to TED.com, Yvonne Roman. So uh, if you go on to TED.com and enter my name, Yvonne Roman, you'll find uh, the talk.
1: It's only six minutes, but it's six minutes of gold. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Yvonne. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show.
3: Oh, My pleasure being here. Thank you.
1: And that is this week's show. Next week, my guest will be Nicole Sexton, the president and CEO of the Entertainment Industry Foundation. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And do come back next Sunday evening for The Business of Giving.
4: The preceding program is paid for by the friends and partners of The Business of Giving